the thing about colonization is that nothing really is different in any of these different manifestations. It might look different because of the resources that are at hand and because of the demographics of the community that are being colonized. But the reason that we can call settler colonialism settler colonialism is that there are a series of traits and characteristics that are enduring and that persist in each kind of instantiation of the project. There is this um, replacement of indigeneity. There is this enslaved or subjugated workforce. There is this demographic replacement. You know, it, it strikes me when the ANC says, you know, we know what apartheid is. Uh, we have experienced apartheid, we have fought against apartheid, what is happening in Palestine is apartheid. This not only has really important meaning for how we understand continental and, and diasporic liberation as Black and Afro-descendant people, but also how we exist in solidarity with struggles that are of people who are not Black. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics, and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research, and struggle. Hello everyone. Today we come we're coming back with a new episode of our regular podcast of the Phenomenalist. A little bit part of a pod, of a few podcasts we're doing in um, in parallel with our brand new issue July August 2020 our third issue called Reparations and um, this is how uh, my guest today is one of uh, the contributor to this issue. Uh, Zoe Zamuzzi, who is a, a writer and a doctoral candidate in uh, medical sociology at the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, she's also a photographer and the archivist with Matatu Nomadic Cinema. Along with William C. Anderson, she's a co-author of As Black as Resistance, Finding the Conditions for Our Liberations, that was published by AK Press in 2018. And she's currently a fellow with Political Research Associates, and we had already talked uh, as part of the Phenobolis podcast, but in the in the small uh, uh, daily series uh, during uh, our confinement called a, Mom a True Moment of Decolonization, uh, she had talked to us about black anarchism. And today, as I said, we will we will give a little bit of a contextualization to her contribution to our thirtieth issue reparations with a text entitled Reparative Futurities, Thinking from the Ova Herero and Nama Colonial Genocide. So, uh, hello, hello Zoe. Hi. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, so today we will, uh, we will speak about uh, the history of Namibia, uh, formerly uh, German Southwest Africa during the during the settler colonial uh, uh, the the first part of the settler colonial era um, and um, and we will um, we will then talk about um, uh, the sort of throughout the tw 20th century uh, history of the country um, that uh, people may may be aware or may not be aware was also occupied by South Africa for um, uh, close to close to 50 years. Um, and we will eventually finish this conversation uh, have in the third part, have, have you tell us a little bit more about this contribution uh, to the reparation issue of the Phenomenalist. Um, so perhaps let's start things chronologically. And can you tell us a little bit of... Um, 
can you give us like a historical contextualization of the German settler colonial project in Namibia? Uh, I mean, in in the in the territories uh, plural uh, that uh, ultimately formed uh, what is today Namibia, and uh, and uh, tell us about uh, the very first uh, genocide of the 20th century that Germany already then uh, uh, had perpetuated against the Namaqua and Ovaherero population uh, in the early 1900s? Yeah, so I think that there's often this way that Germany is thought of as a quote-unquote lesser colonizer because their empire wasn't as expansive as the British or the French or the Spanish. Um, but Germany's kind of col like colonial imperial conquest was a lot more vast than we thought. So in addition to Southwest Africa, there were also there was also um, a colonial project in China and also in the Pacific, um, in Samoa. Uh, but Germany didn't get to Africa until the Berlin Conference in 1884, and it was given. Eastern Africa, so parts of what is now Tanzania. Um, it was also given Cameroon um, and Southwest Africa. Um, what happened in, in Southwest Africa was that, you know, initially there were, beca because um, the, the colonial bureaucracy was not quite as strong and sophisticated, um, As other colonial projects, they, the Germans relied on these kind of protection agreements where there would be like local leadership would enter into um, strategic alliances with the Germans so that the Germans could have relations with all of these leaders instead of having an entire uh, swath of land over which they were responsible for administrating. But after some time... Um, when the colonial encroachments got too kind of aggressive, um, the Herero and the Nama leaders who were previously in these kind of protection agreements with the Germans um, banded together um, and were kind of united in their resistance against German colonial encroachments. Um, the first kind of real battle um, in the military campaign against the Herero and the Nama was the Battle of Waterberg. Um, And what resulted from the Battle of Waterberg was that the Germans did not permit the Herero from uh, to to kind of surrender. So it forced them out into the desert where they forced people to starve and they were poisoning wells so that pe when people would encounter water, they would um, die. Um, after the Battle of Waterberg, uh, Lothar von Trotha, who was a German general who was brought over by the Kaiser in, um, to kind of squash indigenous resistance by any means necessary, issued his extermination order, which was effectively to turn all Herero people into enemy combatants, regardless of whether they were um, women and, and children or they were actually part of the, of the resistance. So we saw they, there was the kind of widespread summary execution. Um, there was further kind of destruction of cattle, um, of, of property. Um, and after the elapsing of the order, after it was rescinded, that was when um, Germany began the use of concentration camps. So there were concentration camps. The most infamous one is at um, Shark Island, um, where it was the, you know, the kind of conditions that were um, present at all of these kind of wartime Um, concentration camps. There was the, the 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 kind of forced conscription of labor. You saw people dying of incredible rates of of disease and malnutrition, and also at the time, um, something that kind of I, we can get into this when we talk about kind of contemporary reparations, um, because this genocide was happening in the kind of golden age of eugenics. Um, what the concentration camps also served as was a means of collecting human remains because at the time of the genocide, um, Western Europeans had banned the use of, uh, um, have had banned like grave robbing. So you could no longer, you know, take cadaver or take corpses out of graves in order to chop them up and, and to use them for science. 
So um, the remains of the Herero and Nama people and also San people um, were, 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 were collected from concentration camps and sent to Germany. And this was a, pr a pretty like massive um, practice. Um, there were uh, military officers who were parts of this. There were concentration camp doctors and scientists and surveyors who were part of different um, eth uh, ethnological, historical, anthropological um, societies. The mo one of the most famous ones being the Berlin Society for Anthropology, Ethnology, and Prehistory. Um, that Eugene Fisher, who was um, a scientist who was in Germany, who in 1913 wrote this text about this mixed race group called the Rehoboth Bastards, um, the offspring of indigenous women and settler men. His conclusion ultimately was that there was some usefulness for them for labor and other things, but ultimately they should not reproduce. And this is the theoretical text that Adolf Hitler picks up um, and uses as the kind of scientific foundation and justification for the anti-miscegenation laws um, that were a part of the, the Nuremberg laws. Um, so in a number of different ways, um, there are some really important connections between the genocide that happened in, in, in German Southwest Africa and the kind of um, the architecture for what the Nazis ended up doing in Europe. Um, in terms of the the conception of Lebensraum, um, which which came out of um, a German biologist's response to Darwin and was um, brought into the realm of geopolitics and really really tested for the first time um, when German began its its colonial project. But I think perhaps we we can go we can go even a little bit more in details. I mean we ha we have time for it, but uh, because. Uh, I think one needs to realize that uh, fifty percent of Namas and eighty percent of Hereros were were uh, obliterated from in 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 this genocide, and as you say, which of course uh, cannot cannot ha cannot have echoes in uh, in a in a more well known genocide Germany committed in the twentieth century, which is of course the the Holocaust, but. Uh, but without without wanting to make to make like of of the Namas and Hereros uh, sort of like uh, without involving them in the whole rhetoric of like you know the the laboratory or like the the try trying uh, like the sort of colonial laboratory as we as as we often often see um, I think I think we we ought to maybe uh... um, okay so. I think that I think that the the idea and the concept of racial geography is really important for understanding Namibia um, and to, to kind of think about Lebensraum as as this organizing structure of land and also of the indigenous inhabitants of that land. So as, as I think that we're generally familiar, Lebensraum means living space. It's kind of thinking about in the colonial context, what does it mean to expand Germanness beyond the kind of continental borders um, of, of Germany and Europe? Um, and when we think about land and, and geography and we think about property rights and we think about what it means to claim land, um, the, the colonial claim to land is also a making a claim of the nature of the subjects who are the indigenous inhabitants of that land. It means, um, and I think Brenna, Brenna Bandar's book, um, Colonial Lives of Property, gets into this really, really usefully in saying that, you know, the assertion of property rights means that people and things are property. Um, the Herero... Uh, through through this regime and as colonial subjects came to be kind of akin to um, to German property through the legislation of like anti-miscegenation through the ways that race race ceased to be you know uh, ceased to be this this kind of culturally attributed idea and was legislated to be something that was hereditary and genetic which is um, what we also see 
in Virginia, for example, through the idea of partis sequitur ventrum, which means that um, a person's status as an enslaved or as a free person is inherited from the mother, which is what enabled white fathers to not have to be responsible for the offspring that was sired through them sexually assaulting people. Um, so you, you're, you're, you're creating these racial divisions um, through the exporting of colonial logics, through these relations to land, um, and the really important part of Lebensraum and this idea of living room is its corresponding um, part, which is uh, removal. Um, in order to have access to land, in order to claim this land as German land or American land or French land or whatever, um, the inhabitants have to be removed from it. Um, and this is kind of the, the basis um, and the foundation for genocide because the indigenous people through this settler colonial process refused um, to cede their land. Um, and I think that part of, part of the discourse that gets a little bit frustrating for me is this idea that um, what happened in Namibia was a practice run for what happened in Europe. And I think that we can, we can discuss how the violences that occurred in the colony are inevitably turned onto the European continent. But I think it's, I think it's, I think it's crude and, and ahistorical to think that, you know, genocide for, 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 for the sake of this particularly temp, this particular temporal conquest, the conquest in this moment was not an end in itself. Um, I think that this is a description that we can make retrospectively but it's not necessarily one that I think makes sense to make in the moment. Um, this was a genocide because this was the mission of colonization that German saw, Germany saw as being necessary in this moment, full stop. Um, so Af Africans are not a, a practice run um, for further violences because the kind of genocides and the enslavements and the social deaths and and all of the atrocities that are committed against um, African people on the continent and in the diaspora is not is not a, is not a kind of exercise a refining exercise. Um, it is a project in and of itself. Yeah, I I, I totally join your frustration and 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 share share it when you know. When we talk also about Gaza as a laboratory, or or that's uh, it's it's always a colonial subject as a sort of uh, as a sort of guinea pig for uh, the the actual projects that would that would land on 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 the European body each time. Um, um but let's uh, let's continue this um, let's continue this uh, sort of timeline. With uh, of course um, uh, the first the first the end of the first world war and uh, and the Treaty of Versailles um, that strips uh, Germany from its uh, African colony and uh, only to give it to other colonizers uh, with uh, Togo to France uh, uh, Tanzania to to Britain uh, Cameroon between Britain and France I mean mostly France. And uh, Namibia uh, or uh, South Southwest South uh, Southwest Africa, which which goes back to what our uh, uh, our uh, uh, dear uh, Tsepo Madlingozi uh, calls like countries with no name, like South Africa being a country with no name, which reflects on the on the settler on the settler colonial roots of of even in the very like in the lack of imagination as well of of settler colonialism that cannot find any other uh, any other names and just like a sort of vague position on a map um and uh and so can you can you tell us a little bit what the treaty of versailles uh Im implies for what will become ultimately namibia uh and how uh has as i introduced a little bit before we uh the, the this this um uh, this country uh went through close to 50 50 years of uh, of occupation by the apartheid regime uh 
reproducing the exact same rules and uh, than the ones applied on the indigenous uh, black people in um, in South Africa. Uh, as well as Bantu stands. Uh, I mean, could you maybe enlighten us with uh, this part of history as well? Yeah. So um, the Treaty of Versailles took um, Germany's colonies away. I believe that Southwest Africa fell under a UN mandate for some time, and then um, it became a part of um, apartheid South Africa. Um, there were the same kinds of structural violences, um, in this apartheid Southwest Africa, as we understand in South Africa, with these restrictions of movement, um, with the, the humiliations of racial segregation, of these roles of subservience, um, you know, in, in so many with these kind of agricultural, um, sharecropping kind of kind of policies like a really kind of cruel continuation of subjugations from the genocide um similarly to the creation of bantu stands um there was the commission of enquiry into into southwest africa affairs which was called the odendal commission um which uh started in 1964 and began being implemented in 1968 And this created um, a similar kind of, of two-tiered or what the Rhodesians called two-pyramid development um, structure um, that would obviously give the vast majority of the land to white settlers, um, Afrikaners, um, where there would be these geographic designations for different um, indigenous groups. So there was Ovambo land, Herero land. There was supposed to be a space for the Himba, um, which I don't think ever came into existence. Um, there was Damara land um, and, and, and other, um, other kinds of homelands that were supposed to be self-autonomous, um, self-governing territories. Um, and so as, as with um, apartheid South Africa, there was also um, native resistance to um, apartheid. And so when you go to the Independence Museum in the capital, um, after you, you you kind of leave this this part where it talks about the genocide, you get into um, uh, the, the creation of, of SWAPO, um, the Revolutionary Party and... Um, the ways that it fought against um, the South African government um, and the ways that it coordinated operations with um, other parties and other groups in Southern Africa that were also fighting against um, their respective colonial powers. So you have the border war um, with what is described as the South African border war where South Africa is simultaneously fighting against groups in Angola and Namibia and in Zambia, because Zambia, who that had became independent in the 1960s, um, was supporting different, um, different groups, um, allowing them to train, um, restock resources, um, and go back to fight against, uh, do, to, to, to wage their guerrilla wars in, in their kind of respective Um, locations. Didn't you want to talk about Rhodesia? Yes. Um. Yeah. Of course. So. <laughs> I thought it might be of interest from coming from you, right. but right. <laughs> While um, Swapo uh, was fighting, and and these and the folks in Angola and Mozambique also were kind of fighting against the regime in South Africa, um, the Zanu and Zapu and their military wings were also fighting against the Rhodesians in what is now Zimbabwe. Um, and there was a lot of like exchange and coordination and training between, between these groups, which I find, you know, really fascinating. Um, Rhodesia, I think was like one of the, is like the only country to ever use like weaponized anthrax against its civilians. So this period of apartheid and liberation struggle was was like particularly, um, I think, particularly brutal. And if we're thinking about the internationalism of settler violence, there was something that was 
really kind of special about Rhodesia and about apartheid South Africa in the kind of white nationalist imaginary because it represented these Edenic nation states in the kind of um, barbaric darkness of, of Africa, particularly of, of communist Africa. Um, and so you had, you know, veteran American veterans that were returning from Vietnam and, and going and serving as mercenaries um, and fighting on behalf of the Rhodesian government and fighting on behalf of the South African National Defense Forces because they believed in this mission of protecting these white Edens um, from, from these like black communists, um, which is something that I found, I didn't actually learn this until relatively recently when Dylan Roof um, murdered those churchgoers in, in, in Charleston, I, he, I, I have, I don't think, or maybe I've blocked out what the Rhodesian flag looks like, but he had a pin of the South African, the union of South Africa and Rhodesia. Um, because, you know, this is a really, these are both like really kind of important symbols in the white nationalist or in, in American paramilitary culture. Um, and 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 even though both of these countries were technically supposed to be under um, sanction, right? Obviously, South Africa was under sanctions increasingly because of of the 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 moral ethical blemish of apartheid, and Rhodesia was also under sanction because um, they unilaterally declared independence in 1965 when the British government had a, a no independence um, before black minority rule um, or black majority rule rule. Um, but despite the sanctions, I think it's really important to talk about the role that actually Israel played as a really major supplier of um, military technology to both of the countries. Um, that some of the tanks that were, or there's this particular kind of armored vehicle that we're seeing, that we saw this random town um, in like West Virginia uh, roll out. And um, it was one that was um, developed by the Rhodesian government um, to protect against um, IEDs. Um, the reason that South African, the South African government got nuclear weapons was because of a secret program that was given, um, or a secret program between, or in a, in a military exchange between Israel and the South African government. Or, you know, for example, the first time that um, video drones were used, um, it was a piece of Israeli technology that was used by the South African National Defense Force against SWAPO. Um, and that same piece of technology was later used against the PLO in Lebanon. Um, so it's really interesting to look at the kind of material um, supports, um, the parallels and kind of continuities in, in the attempts to suppress indigenous resistance and the attempts to suppress indigenous self-determinations. Um, but I think most importantly, like just as we kind of have this ethos of international solidarity, um, Settler states also had the same. Um, the Rhodesians and the South Africans supported one another. Um, I think I believe also the United States broke sanctions um, in in attempts to acquire um, resources. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we can we can maybe think as well of uh, of the way uh, the the settler colonial the settler colony we know we know as Australia has been also. Um, very recently, uh, uh, offering almost political asylum—I <laughs> mean, not political asylum, settler asylum—to Afrikaners who who might be losing some of uh, some part of their land uh, based on a on a new law in in South Africa. Needless to say, that they are uh, they are in no danger whatsoever to to actually lose uh, a significant uh, a significant amount of their land, but. Perhaps actually, I I meant to I meant to ask you this as a conclusion, but uh, it might it might actually be the right time to to talk about it, which is some things that I absolutely love about your work and um, and uh, and I think you you just you just very eloquently uh, gave us a sort of snippet snippet of which is the 
very international connections that you're you're looking at both from the side of the of the settler states and the white supremacist states and uh, in terms of internationalist uh, solidarity so I, I sort of wanted to ask you whether you could talk about this in in the context of not only Namibia but perhaps southern southern Africa in general and uh, and what it might what it might mean today for for pan-africanism but also for internationalism at large yeah um i mean to 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 kind of to to first kind of talk about the settler solidarity um in 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 australia offering asylum to afrikaners i think it's really interesting that the the basis of this solidarity is this mythology of white genocide um is this idea that white farm owners being killed for their land or i mean is it something that has happened yes is this is it a kind of systemic systematic um murder of white farmers like no absolutely not um but it is really in it was really interesting to see president trump talking about this as well Um, because this is a, a meme, this is a phenomenon that is really popular to engage um, in white nationalist um, discourses and circles, um, while also simultaneously ignoring the historic and um, ongoing genocides um, that these settler colonies are inflicting on indigenous populations. Like, what is the irony of white Australians talking about a white genocide when they are actively participating in the genocide of Aboriginal communities? Um, but also I think, you know, reading a lot or, or reading what I have read about the border war and, and the kind of different, um, co-constituted and, 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 and co-understood, um, struggles. I think it's really incredible that whenever, you know, I think about Zimbabwean independence, I have to, I have to thank Mozambique because of the ways that they sheltered, Um, Zimbabwean fighters um, and the ways that resources were being shared. Um, obviously have to thank Angola, like have to thank the Cubans because Fidel Castro sent a lot of troops in support of, um, of Angolan independence. Um, I think that there's something that's so powerful of not just not not this not simply this kind of abstracted idea of anti-capitalism and and of what it means for um, none of us to be free until all of us are free, but this really meaningful willingness to like fight and die for a people trying to um, free themselves from 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 the violence of col of of colonization. Um, So it's, it's, and then it's also really impactful to see, you know, folks in Southern Africa, not only because of, of the way that Israel was helping to fund, um, the Rhodesian government was helping to fund the South African National Defense Forces, but to simply see, um, similarities in, in, in the Palestinian struggle and to throw their weight wholeheartedly behind the support of the PLO, um, I think that there's something that's 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 so incredible in in not attempting to say and not attempting to to force a contrived similarity where it doesn't exist but to recognize the uniqueness as well as um as well as a a sameness in structure because the thing about colonization is that nothing really is different um in any of these different manifestations It might look different because of the resources that are at hand and because of the demographics of the community that are being colonized. Um, but the reason that we can call settler colonialism settler colonialism is that there are a series of traits and characteristics that are enduring and that persist um, in each kind of instantiation of the project. Um, there is this um, replacement of indigeneity. There is this... Um, this this enslaved or subjugated workforce there is this demographic replacement you know um and so it's very it's it's always really you know despite whatever critiques we might have of the anc today it it really it, it strikes me when the anc says you know we know what apartheid is uh, we have experienced apartheid we have fought against apartheid what is happening in palestine is apartheid um i think 
yeah, this not only has really uh, important meaning for how we understand continental and and diasporic liberation as Black and Afro-descendant people, but also how we exist in solidarity with struggles that are of people who are not Black. Great. Thank, thank you so much for this. It was... That was wonderful. So let's uh, let's move now to the last part of this conversation, which is more uh, oriented on the, on this contribution you generously uh, uh, did for us uh, in the new issue of the Phenomenalist about reparation, which is uh, uh, which is uh, thinking of the what you yourself introduce as uh, reparative futurities. Um, for the Nama and Hero um, de descendants of uh, from the from the genocide and the settler colonial project, um, you start uh, surprisingly or not surprisingly, I don't know. You start you start with a with a phone call uh, to the to the American Museum of Natural History in New York uh, as as a as a sort of starting point to to think of, to think about those reparation and what's uh, what's sort of are the um, obstacles to obstacles to it i mean obstacles does not even start to qualify it really but but can you can you can you tell us about it? can you tell us about it yeah i was heading out of the us um i was on my way to armenia for this other kind of larger project that i'm thinking about Um, with regards to kind of German coloniality and violence because Germany had been a part of the Armenian genocide as well. Um, and I had recently learned about how the American Museum of Natural History in New York City had acquired um, a very large uh, physical anthropology collection from Felix von Luschen, who was a part of the Berlin Society for Anthropology, Ethnology, and Prehistory that I had talked about earlier. Um, and he had collected like a really massive um, kind of arrangement of human remains from around the world um, and sold them to the Museum of Natural History at the beginning of the 20th century. And so I was hoping that in the time I was in New York that I would be able to see the Von Lushan collection because it was one that had, it's, it's like really tremendously studied and at the time there was an ongoing lawsuit and there's a class action lawsuit between the Harrow at the Harrow and the Nama against Germany um in a New York federal court because I think that there's something particular about alien tort law that allows for these kinds of international legal civil rights cases to be held there um the case was ongoing And for whatever reason, I was not able to access um, the records and I was not give much, given much of an explanation about why. Um, so the more that I was reading and the more I learned about the practices of, of remains collection and I learned about how these Herrero and Nama and San remains ended up in American and German archival collections. Um, For example, the Alexander Ecker collection at the uh, at Freiburg University for, was one that was uh, managed by um, Eugene Fisher, um, the scientist that I described earlier. So part of the, the reparations demands that the Herrero and Nama are making, they're, they're, it's from what I've come to understand, they're kind of twofold. The first is obviously to get those remains back. Um, so that they can be buried in, in wh wherever they need to be buried, um, more likely than not, I think, in the kind of ancestral lands. Um, because there's something really devastating about, and I, and I think that this is very different from the way that Westerners understand death, where it's like, in, in the interview that I did with the, Nash, the, the Nama Traditional Leaders Association, which is quoted quite extensively in the piece, There's this description of how, you know, you do not complete a life cycle until your remains or your body or whatever is interred. And so in this way, there is this understanding of the genocide kind of still continuing, um, not only through the kind of 
cultural genocide of people not being able to access remains or not being able to learn about the 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 history that is in the archives but also through the the, the physical holding um of 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 body parts um and if you read the history of the ways that the body parts were acquired you know it's it's pretty gruesome you know you have you know women in the concentration camps who are literally forced to scrape off you know skin from the skull so that they can be kept and 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 sent back to germany um there were graves that were desecrated even back in the 20th century in order for um the scientists or the military officers or whomever to be able to access um the remains because of of beliefs in in an in african inferiority or the particular beliefs in 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 the qualities of um koi and san body parts um yeah, so the first, obviously, it's it's reparations fr from Germany. It's the return um, and the repatriation of these remains. But secondly, there is also this this issue of, of of kind of national unity, right? So this the second part of 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 the reparations conversation has to do with the present Namibian nation state, um, because because of the kind of land-based dispossession that they describe as having begun during the 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 process of genocide and and still continuing through what they see as a kind of ethno hegemony that is held by Swapo because Swapo is not just this this revolutionary party it is particularly an Ovambo party um and and, and, and so a big part, a really important part of ancestralization is a politic around land. Um, and, and, and we know that like land reform is a really contentious issue in, in Southern Africa. And it's not just contentious because of white people um, being afraid of, of losing what agricultural and commercial and other land holdings they hold. Um, but also has to do with the ways that indigenous communities are being forcibly assimilated or resisting assimilation into the nation state, right? You know, clinging to this idea of needing your ancestral home and land is antithetical to this idea that we are all Namibian and this is all Namibian land. Um, and so if everything is all Namibian land, um, then there is no reason to think about how um, genocidal dispossession in the 20th century has continued into the present. Um, so there's a lot of, of, of kind of animus towards the, the Namibian government because of what is perceived as an undermining of this reparation process because the government is, is kind of, is worried about, about compromising, um, development aid. And so the German government, you know, there's a quote in here that to me was really uh, potent because they say, you know, the Namibian government is the first obstacle to genocide recognition and reparations because its approach allowed Germany to package the deal through increased bilateral development aid arrangements, thereby completely exonerating the German government from the barbaric historical carnage left behind in Namibia. Basically, this idea that what should be direct reparations to the community is instead going is is instead being understood as like a a development reparation aid whatever to the entire country with the logic being you know were we not all harmed by colonization right but i think that there's a very distinct difference between everyone being harmed by settler colonization um and this ver the, these particular groups of people being explicitly targeted um, and annihilated um, by, by, by Germany, you know, 80% of the Herero were killed, like half of the Nama were killed. Like this is, and, and also I think it's important to recognize that the, the fighting of the Herero wars or, it didn't occur over the entire, the entire geographic expanse of Namibia. Um, it was concentrated in, in particular areas. Um, and so the question of, of reparations that I'm asking kind of in this piece and that I'm thinking about in my dissertation work 
is what does it mean, you know, two things. One, what does it mean to to give reparations for a process that is still ongoing, right? Like what would it mean for, to, to give some kind of reparation to a people who are still being dispossessed of their land? Um, and, and the second question is, is kind of, not only what does it mean for this group of people, but broadly, what does it mean to give reparations to black people when anti-blackness kind of is one of the the kind of ontological structurings of whiteness, right? Because when whiteness evolved or when what we understand as being whiteness kind of emerged in Europe, it's this foil to the people who can be enslaved, the people who can be killed, right? I think that there's a really important point in the development of whiteness when Europeans stopped also enslaving Slavs um, and began to exclusively enslave African people. Um, so how, how do you begin to repair this wounding that is not just about the loss of humans or the loss of, in the case of, uh, of of the hero and the nama you know the loss of of people who could be creating capital for that community what does it mean to to create a reparation for an atrocity that structured kind of the western episteme that structures modernity um and i don't know what that i don't know what that means um I don't, I don't know what it means to try to acknowledge a harm, to acknowledge a genocide, to acknowledge this process of violence when to stop that process is to kind of undo the seams of what makes the world as we understand it function. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, that's something that Black Studies is tangling with. That's something that, you know... Chepo and other radical kind of legal thinkers and historians are trying to grapple with. Um, I have I have no idea. <laughs> perhaps perhaps that's where the the notion of futurities that comes that comes at the very beginning of your text can come at the very end of this conversation. Yeah, I mean. I, I read a lot of, of of Sylvia Winter and it was super exciting to see, you know, Ariella Zule's letter to Sylvia Winter. Um, but I read a lot of Sylvia Winter and it and it and I and I was so taken aback the first time I started reading her work, like what her not solutions, but like what her what she sees as the kind of contention, right? The problem is not simply it's not it's not simply the harm that is being caused the problem is the human the problem is this particularly particular category of being to which to which marginalized people are forced to aspire um but from which they are always excluded and so you know at the end of this i talk about the the kind of paradox of of genocide recognition because of course, it's it's critical and it's important to to um, to recognize to recognize genocides, but it is also to say that in order to recognize a genocide, it means you know that you are essentially recognizing someone's humanity and that as hum like that there is a, a a violence being done against humans, right? Which means that this is the process of making harm legible. Um, so in this way, genocide recognition becomes an act of assimilation, um, into this frame of the human that Sylvia Winter has talked about as being, as being violent, um, as being a colonial kind of invention. And when I think about futurities, I think not of the kind of empathy project that allows for us to see historical harms and to find them atrocious and to and to to seek recourse in the present but also to consider what does it mean to 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 affirm a historical uh, an event or a process or phenomenon or whatever without relying on this idea of the human 
you know, what does it mean to to think about solidarity in the Glissantian sense of everyone having this right to opacity, where we aren't forced or compelled to make people or, or, or identities legible in order to be in solidarity, to embrace, to embrace difference um, while not also being compelled towards hierarchy. Um, and I think, and, and, I, and I, don't, I don't think I get into any of this too much um, in the piece, but I think a lot about, you know, what, what, what is the future after the end of the world? Um, what, what is the future after not simply the recognition of these harms, but in a world where indigenous communities are able to be self-determining? Um, and as much as, you know, I'm not one for optimism, um, but as much as things seem a bit bleak, I think that that's something that really kind of keeps me moving. Um, that, you know, I have the ability to kind of work in concert with some of these incredible ideas um, and desires and, and urgent movements and gestures that are being made by indigenous communities and thinking about what it means to like to live in that world and to bring about that world in whatever capacity I can um, in my own kind of corner. I think it's exciting. Nice. Well, I'm, I'm not one for hope, but I'm one for tactical optimism. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I really like this conclusion. Thank you. Thank you so much, Zoe. And uh, I think you, you, made, you made a bridge towards uh, uh, Ariela Azulay's uh, text in the issue, but I, I, I clearly see another one with, uh, with Cas Robert uh, in terms of what would that mean to actually... Uh, what would what would that mean if the the actual reparations is uh, is a total revolution revolution of of a world built on the, on the on the white nationalist episteme to to use your to use your terms, but also the the text that uh, Linda Kikivich whose title is reparation towards the end of the world. So I I see a lot of connection there as well. Thank you so much once again for taking the time to do this little compliment and contextualization of your piece. I think it was incredibly useful to me and uh, for sure to uh, many other people who will listen. And uh, best of luck uh, in, uh, in uh, finishing this, this chapter you were, you were telling me about in your, in your PhD. <laughs> Thanks, Zoe. <laughs> Thank you so much. This podcast is produced by The Phenomenalist. You can listen to dozens of other episodes on your favorite podcast platforms and on our website at thephenomenalist.net.